Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Citizens Church and the saints, believers gathered here this morning. Father, thank you for the children gathered here. Father, we pray for these children as they'll be starting school soon. Pray that you would prepare them to learn. I pray that they would learn this year more about you and the world that you've created. Pray that you'd prepare their minds to grow. Pray that you'd be with teachers, that teachers would educate our children well. Father, I pray that you'd be with those who are involved in local school boards and the, the public schools, that they would make good decisions for the education of the children in society. Father, I pray especially also for mothers who are homeschooling their children, that they would uh, do that with excellence, that you'd give them strength and patience and wisdom. Father, I pray that, that you'd be with the fathers in the congregation who are looking after the education of their children and that they would always remember to keep in mind the guiding star that we are to raise up our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Father, I pray that you'd be with Christian schools in the area as well and that they would continue to uh, teach children what is true and right and beautiful. Father, I pray that you'd be with other churches in the Columbus area gathered together in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. Father, I pray that those churches would continue to proclaim the gospel faithfully. Father, I pray that you would use the weekly gathering to strengthen your saints. And Father, I pray for each of the saints gathered here. We each have a unique role in this world, unique spheres of influence in which you've placed us. We each have unique ministries, Father. And I pray that you would help each of us to fulfill the ministry that you've given us. Help us to be shining lights in a world of darkness. And help this morning and the gospel that we're reminded of to be part of the equipping that helps us to go out uh, and share what we've been given with others. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll be reading verses 13 to verse 25 together. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 to 25. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you who by him do believe in God, that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart, fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, 
which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which, by the gospel, is preached unto you. Let's pray for the word. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these words in the first epistle of Peter. Father, I pray that you would help us as we study these words together, that you would, we would learn what you have for us here. Father, I pray that you'd be with my words that I would say, what you've laid on my heart accurately. Father, I pray that I'd be able to convey the message that you intended to communicate through your servant Peter, and that we would all together learn from it and be equipped for the work of the ministry. Father, I pray that you'd be with our minds, that you'd still all the concerns of the world, and that you would quiet them and help us to focus for a little while on your word. I pray that you'd uh, make this an edifying time and that you'd bless what's said and done during the remainder of this service. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. This morning we're going to commence, recommence our study in Peter's first epistle. When we last met, we considered verses 13 to 16 and Peter's charge to be ye holy. We discussed how Peter, beginning in verse 13, turns from explaining the nature of our salvation to focusing our attention on the outworking of our salvation. In the first 12 verses of this epistle, as we discussed, Peter details various aspects of our marvelous salvation, from God's work in eternity past to the state of the redeemed in eternity future. But having concluded his introductory remarks, in verse 13, Peter begins outlining broad fundamental principles from which the rest of his teaching will flow. Last time we began studying these fundamental principles by examining Peter's command to be holy. We considered how the command to be holy really means that we must recognize that God has set us apart as a people distinct from the world and that we should walk not according to the pattern of the world's lawlessness but according to God's expressed standard of righteousness. We study Peter's subsidiary instructions there in verse 13 that help us live lives of holiness. Gird up the loids of your mind. Be sober. Hope for the grace that is to be brought at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter told us to be holy in all of our conduct. And in a way, the rest of this first epistle of Peter just unpacks what it means to be holy in all the various spheres of life. Peter's going to tell us how to interact with other believers in a holy way, how to interact with government in a holy way, with employers, with spouses, with unbelievers, and with other believers specifically in a local congregation. And this morning, we're not going to be leaving what we've studied behind. Rather, in verses 17 to verses 21, where we'll focus this morning, we're going to continue to study these practical exhortations that enable us to live holy lives. And in this section, we'll focus specifically on Peter's command that we should live this life in what he calls uh, fear. We are to pass the time of our sojourning in fear. We'll consider how the judgment of the Father displayed against the backdrop of the blood of the Son motivates the believer to sojourn in fear. Peter tells us in verse 17 to pass the time of our sojourning here in fear. First consider the word sojourning. 
This echoes a theme that Peter began in the first verse of this epistle. Recall that he opened in verse 1 by referring to his readers as strangers or pilgrims. He'll continue the theme in chapter 2, verse 11, by appealing to his readers as strangers and pilgrims. But what is sojourning? Hebrews 11 gives us a good definition, and you can turn there if you'd like. I'm going to be reading in Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 9. In this chapter, we see Hebrews, the author to the Hebrews, describe Abraham and his descendants as sojourners and pilgrims. Consider Hebrews 11, 9. It says, By faith he, Abraham, by faith he sojourned in a land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles, or tents, with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. Then consider verse 13 of the same chapter, describing Abraham's descendants. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. They confessed, these descendants of Abraham, that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Do you remember what Jacob said when Pharaoh asked him how old he was? We have it in Genesis 47, 9. Jacob said, the days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. Jacob confessed that he was a pilgrim, but why did he do that? Why did Jacob see himself as a pilgrim? Why was Abraham described as a sojourner? Now Hebrews 11:14 tells us, it says, For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now, they desire a better country, that is, and heavenly. See, Abraham and his descendants sought a better country, and that's what it means to be a sojourner. It's someone who's seeking a country. You haven't arrived yet, but you're seeking one. Peter here in our passage tells us that our life is a sojourning. We seek a better country. Though we don't belong in the foreign country in which we find ourselves, we do our best to live peaceably with all men. Peter's going to instruct us in the next chapter, too, on how we should relate to earthly governments in a holy manner. But while we live at peace in the earthly country in which God has placed us, we don't adopt its patterns. We don't walk according to its passions, the former lusts that Peter warned us of in verse 14. We don't, as Peter says in verse 18, walk in the vain and empty traditions that we've inherited from our fathers. Rather, we live lives of holiness. If you were to walk into the home of someone living in a foreign country, you would see and hear things out of step with the surrounding culture. Uh, someone living in a country foreign from their own might have cupboards in their home that contain foods that are unfamiliar to those around them. You might see books on the shelf uh, that contain words in a language unfamiliar to the surrounding culture. And in a way, the Christian sojourner's home should be the same. Our homes are little embassies of heaven here on earth. Is there anything of the better country in your home? Is there any taste of heaven's peace? Is there any rest on the Lord's day? Is there any discussion of the world to come? Is there any preparation for it? Do we spend more time working to make ourselves fit for the heavenly country we're supposed to be seeking or for retirement? Where are we investing the precious time and resources of our sojourn? Remember the words of Jesus. For where your treasure is, 
there will your heart be also. So how can we adopt the sojourning mindset? Well, we can begin like Abraham's descendants and as Abraham's descendants by confessing, if only to ourselves at first, that we're sojourners, pilgrims, and we can look forward to that better country. But now that we have a little bit of a better idea of what the term sojourning means, I want to consider and notice something else that Peter tells us about this sojourn. He says, pass the time of your sojourn here in fear. Our sojourning is only for a time. It's not for eternity, but for a time. Peter always keeps the brevity of life in front of us. In 2 Peter 1, verses 13 and 14, he compares the human body to a tent, like the tents that Abraham and his descendants dwelt in. The tent is the most temporary dwelling place, and, and Peter refers to his own death as simply putting off this my tabernacle or tent. Later in chapter 1 of, of 1 Peter, he's going to compare human life to frail plant life. He says, For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But Peter isn't alone in keeping the brevity of life before us, and as far as I'm concerned, uh, no one puts it better than James. In James 4.14, he asked this question, What is your life? That's a good question. It's a question many around us would desperately like to know. And perhaps you could be the one to show them the answer. James gives it to us in the rest of that verse. He says, What is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. Do you view your life as a vapor? Do you view it as something that will appear for a little while and then vanish away? Or do you live as though it will go on almost indefinitely? How can we learn to appreciate the brevity of life? Well, one thing we can do, I believe, is pray with David in Psalm 39. And specifically in Psalm 39, verses 4 and 5, he says this, Lord, make me to know mine end and the measure of my days, what it is, that I may know how frail I am. Behold, thou hast made my days as an handbreadth, and mine age is as nothing before thee. And then down in verse 12 of Psalm 39, he says, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear unto my cry. Hold not thy peace at my tears, for I am a stranger with thee, and a sojourner, as all my fathers were. Lord, make us know the measure of our days. Our life is only a vapor. We have only a short time to walk this life in holiness. And Peter's specific point in highlighting the time of our sojourn is to direct us how to use that time. Peter tells us to pass the brief time of our sojourning in fear. Godly fear should characterize our conduct in this life. What does it mean to pass our time in fear? Well, in one sense, the instruction restates the command we've already studied, be ye holy. Past the time is easy to understand. It simply means that we are to spend the time of our sojourn that God has given us in the way that Peter's instructed. Or, if you like it, pass can be translated as the word conduct. For example, verse 17 in the New King James of the ESV says, conduct yourselves 
throughout the time of your stay here in fear. And, and this brings out an interesting connection with verse 15, which reads, But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all your conduct. And the connection is this. The underlying word there is the same. The extent to which we walk in holiness, which is all of our conduct, is the extent to which we should conduct ourselves in fear. God wants us to conduct ourselves throughout our entire sojourn in fear. But again, what does it mean that we should sojourn in fear? I think the best way to understand this fear is to get some idea of the object of the fear in our passage, because fear, like love, always has an object. And the object of this godly fear is an unholy life. Again, Peter's primary focus in this section is to encourage us to be holy. Peter shows us in these verses that we have two motivations for this fear of an unholy life. Or, to put it positively, Peter gives us two motivations for holy living. First, we fear an unholy life because we want to obey our Father. Second, we fear an unholy life because we want to honor the blood of the Son. First, let's consider how this godly fear is motivated by a desire to obey the Father. Peter constantly reminds us that God is the believer's Father. He opened the letter by reminding us that we're elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. He then praised the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for blessing us with the new birth. And at the beginning of this section on holiness, Peter tells us to obey how? As obedient children. Now, in verse 17, Peter begins with this statement, And if ye call on the Father. Peter says if here, not because he doubts that his readers call on God as Father, but because they do. He's saying it like this. He's, he's drawing them in and engaging his readers, and he's saying, You who call God your Father, remember that he judgeth according to every man's work. Yes, God is our Father, but remember our Father is the great judge of the earth. We see that God judges without respect of persons, which is to say he judges impartially. An earthly judge must recuse himself if he has a personal interest in the outcome of a case, which means he's to step down and be replaced by another judge. And we have rules like this because we understand that humans, frail as we are, can be swayed by our personal interests. But God cannot be swayed. The cross stands as the stark reminder that when the great judge of the earth sat in judgment of his only begotten son, his perfect justice met the sin that Jesus bore in his own body on the tree, and Jesus bore the penalty for our sin that God's justice required. The Father's justice was not swayed by the person of his Son. He is an impartial judge. And now we come to the word judgeth. Peter tells us that the Father judgeth. What is this judgment? And how does the Father's judgment motivate us to sojourn in godly fear? To properly answer these questions, I think we must consider for a few moments the biblical teaching on the topic of judgment. And by understanding this topic a bit more broadly, I think we can better appreciate the sort of fear that should characterize our sojourn. At the most basic level, you need two things for a judgment. First, you need a standard by which to judge. Second, you need a set of facts to measure against that standard. 
In an earthly court, the standard is the laws by which a judge evaluates the facts before him. In heaven's court, God judges by his own standard of righteousness. Often when we think of God's standard of righteousness, we think of his law. And the law does teach principles of righteousness. But God expressed his righteousness most clearly apart from the law, in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 3.21 says it this way, But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. God manifested his righteousness without or apart from the law. And how did he manifest his righteousness? In verses 25 and 26 of Romans 3, describing Christ Jesus, Paul says this, Whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. God declared his righteousness in the blood of Jesus Christ. God forgave sins, yes, because Christ Jesus shed his blood to pay for those sins. Sin must be punished. God must be just. We see God's standard in the cross because it is on the cross that we see our Savior bearing our sins, thorns piercing his brow, nails through his hands and feet holding him on the tree, and his blood running down. We see his Father, and because of the blood, our Father, as the judge of our sins that Jesus bore in his own body. John Owen, a 17th century theologian, put it this way. To see Christ, the wisdom and power of God, always beloved of the Father, fear and tremble, bow and sweat, pray and die. To see him lifted up on the cross, the earth trembling beneath him as if unable to bear his weight. To see the heavens darkened over him as if shut against his cry, and himself hanging between both as if refused by each. And to see that all of this is because of our sins is to see clearly the holy justice and wrath of God against sin. Supremely in Christ do we learn this great truth, that God hates sin and judges it with a dreadful and fearful judgment. Now that we have the standard, God's righteousness, what facts will God measure against this standard? These facts are the works that make up our lives. Again, verse 17 says, The Father judgeth according to every man's work. Did you know there is a terrifying library in heaven where all our works are written down? We read about it in the 20th chapter of the book of Revelation. Revelation describes the final judgment at the end of time, sometimes called the great white throne judgment. And beginning in verse 11, Revelation 20 says this, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books, according to their works. And then down in verse 15 it says, 
and whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This passage describes people being judged according to their works that were written in the books. How does it strike you that everything you've ever done is written in that library in heaven? Every idle word, every impure thought, every wasted opportunity is written in the books in heaven. Your entire life, every good work you've ever done and every sin you've ever committed, it's all in the books. And these are the facts to be measured against the standard of judgment that God displayed on the cross. Is a work obedience to Christ or is it sin? Is it a work that furthers Christ's kingdom or a work that furthers our own selfish ambition? God is the judge. But now that we understand the standard of judgment and the facts that will be judged against the standard, we must consider the various sorts of judgments. Because the Bible describes different sorts of judgments, some of which believers enter into, and some of which they do not. I don't speak this morning of timing. Bible-believing Christians can reach different conclusions on when these judgments occur, and because our text does not concern the timing, we don't enter into that question now. But the sort of judgment is relevant to the question before us, and the question before us is this, what sort of judgment does verse 17 mention when it says that the Father judgeth? And how does that motivate us to sojourn in fear? Going back to Revelation 20, an important question for us this morning is, will believers stand on that day before the great white throne with the books open and have their eternal destiny decided according to their works? Again, look at Revelation 20. Notice what happened to the people judged out of the books. Those who are judged out of the books according to their works. Does it say, and whosoever had insufficiently righteous works was cast into the lake of fire? No. What does it say? Verse 15, and whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. But if you're not written in the book of life, then you stand before God with nothing but your own works, and you'll be judged from the great white throne according to those works. And everyone who's not in the book of life, whose eternal destiny depends on being judged according to their works, will be cast into the lake of fire, because we are not saved according to our works. Second Timothy 1.9 says, God hath saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Believers do not face judgment according to their works to determine their eternal destiny. John chapter 5 is very important in this regard. In John chapter 5 verse 22 says this, For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. Well, how do we square this verse, for the Father judgeth no man, with 1 Peter 1.17, which said, the Father judgeth according to every man's work? Well, we find the answer in verse 24. Verse 24 says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life, 
and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. In the translation that I'm reading from, the verse says that the believer, he that heareth my word and believeth on me, shall not come into condemnation. But that's a poor translation. It should say that the believer will not come into judgment. It's the exact same word in Greek as the word judgment in verse 22. Jesus is saying here that the Father judgeth no man as to his eternal destiny because he's committed that judgment to the Son. That's the sort of judgment that John 5 is describing. That's the sort of judgment that ends with those being judged according to works being cast into the lake of fire. But Jesus says that everyone that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me, and who sent him but the Father, if you call on the Father, everyone that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life. The one who hears Jesus and believes on the Father has passed from death unto life. Or in the words of Revelation 20, everyone who hears Jesus and believes on the Father is written in the book of life. That believer, Jesus says, shall not come into judgment and specifically shall not come into the judgment as to eternal destiny administered by the Son. The believer in the Lord Jesus Christ will never stand on the shores of the lake of fire wondering if his works were sufficient to keep him out. The believer has passed from death unto life. The believer's name is written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. But does this mean that the believer faces no judgment according to his works? No. The believer does face judgment. We face judgment not as to eternal destiny, but to receive reward or loss of reward for the work we've done in our lives. Consider the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.10. Speaking to believers, he says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Everyone will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Consider also 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15. Again, speaking to believers, Paul says this, For no other foundation can man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall receive, suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so is by fire. God will try or test every man's work. Notice the passage doesn't say that Jesus will try the amount of our work, but the sort of our work. That's what he'll judge. We can build with the work of our lives out of two sorts of building materials. We can build with gold, silver, and precious stones, a life of holiness, things that will last, or we can live unholy lives and we'll build with wood, hay, and stubble. And the fire will reveal what sort of life we lived. Again, where are we investing the precious time of our sojourning? Where are we investing the resources God has given us? 
Do we have the same priorities as the world? Do we want to be like the man whose entire life was a waste? His entire life's work was wood, hay, and stubble. He spent his time on things that didn't matter. Or do we want to kneel before that judgment seat of Christ and say to our Savior that by the grace of God we invested the gifts and time that he gave us to the best of our ability to further his kingdom during this our short sojourning? We can't wait until tomorrow to begin this work. We can't wait until we retire and have more time because tomorrow is not certain. What is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. But we don't do this by our own power. And now we're getting close, I believe, to what Peter intended to convey in verse 17. Again, in verse 17, he points us to the Father who judgeth according to every man's work. And he tells us, in light of this, to sojourn in fear. We've seen that the Father has committed judgment as to eternal destiny to the Son. And we've seen that it is at the judgment seat of Christ that believers receive rewards according to their works. In light of this, it seems most consistent with these other scriptures to consider the judgment of verse 17 this way. When Peter says that the Father judgeth, he is referring to the Father's ongoing fatherly correction of the believer in this life. We see the Father described as exercising this sort of judgment several times in scripture. For example, Consider Jesus' familiar words in John 15, 1 and 2. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away, and every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Jesus says, the one body of Christ is like a vine, and the Father, a husbandman, a farmer, a vine dresser, walks through the vineyard and identifies those branches that are bearing fruit. And he takes twine and he takes his pruning shears and he picks up the fruit-bearing branches and he looks to see if they're growing any unfruitful shoots or subsidiary branches that are diverting their attention from their true purpose, which is to grow grapes. And he takes his shears and he trims away those parts of the branches, the fruit-bearing branches that are not useful to their primary purpose, which is to produce more fruit. Does the father, the vine dresser, do this because he hates the branches? Does he do it because he wants to crush the branches? No. He prunes the fruit-bearing branch because he loves it. He does it, as it says in John 15, that it may produce more fruit. That's the sort of judgment that Peter's describing. That's the sort of judgment that our Father exercises in our lives. He looks at us lovingly and identifies those areas of our lives where our works are devoted to wood, hay, and stubble, and he prunes those away so that we might devote our attention to the areas of our lives in which we're investing with gold and silver and precious stones. He wants to see us bring forth more fruit. But how will we respond to the Father's pruning in our lives, the Father's judgment? Because it can be painful when he does that. The author to the Hebrews tells us uh, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11, he says, Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Chasing, pruning is not joyous, but only for the present, because it will yield fruit in our lives. 
And so how should we respond? Hebrews 12, verses 12 and 13 says, Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down in the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Follow peace with all men, and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. In light of God's chastening, in light of his pruning, in light of his judgment, lift up your hands. Walk on straight paths. Follow holiness. In other words, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. But again, take a warning from what we read in 1 Corinthians 3.15. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so is by fire. Some will be saved as by fire. Despite the Father's chastening, despite the Father's pruning, they continue to devote their energy to different endeavors that will not last, different areas in which they're building with wood, hay, and stubble. They devote, they trust Christ and not their own works for salvation, but they build nothing that will last. And when the fire of that day will try their works, nothing will last because their entire life was a waste. They'll suffer loss of reward. They'll be saved, though as by fire. They'll stand before Christ on the last day with nothing to show for their lives. We need his correction. We need the Father's judgment because he loves us and he wants to see us bring forth more fruit. We must pass the time of our sojourning here in fear, in fear of an unholy life, in fear of a life that ignores the correction of the Father, in fear of a life that in the final analysis will be burnt away and be found to have been an almost complete waste. And so we say with the hymn writer, Guide us, O thou great Jehovah, pilgrims through this barren land. We are weak, but thou art mighty. Hold us by thy powerful hand. Bread of heaven, bread of heaven, feed us till we want no more. Feed us till we want no more. Having understood something more about the judgment of the Father and why we as believers should walk in fear of it, we now turn to the second related motivation to sojourn in fear. We sojourn in fear because we want to honor the blood of the Son. We'll not stay long with this because we've already discussed it above. It's really impossible to discuss the judgment of the Father without also discussing the blood of His Son where His judgment was most clearly displayed. Peter says we sojourn in fear, verse 18. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, skip down to verse 19. If we weren't redeemed with corruptible things, what were we redeemed with? But with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. We fear for as much, or because we know. We don't fear because we aren't sure if the works we've done in this life are good enough. We fear because we know that we have been redeemed. We have been redeemed. We have been purchased. The sin that separated us from the Father no longer exists. The Son took it onto himself. He carried it up Calvary's hill and onto the cross. And in satisfaction of God's perfect justice, Jesus offered himself as a lamb without blemish and without spot. God is just and the justifier of them that believe in Christ Jesus. He is just because he punished our sin in Christ Jesus on the cross. Because God is just, he must punish sin. But because God is just, he will not punish it twice. The sin punished in Jesus on the cross 
is gone. There is no condemnation for them that are in Christ Jesus. They will not enter into judgment, but have passed from death into life. By way of a closing thought, think again of the great white throne. On the last day will your name be found in the book of life, or will you stand and be judged according to your works and be thrown eternally into the lake of fire? It's the most important question you could possibly consider. Who is written in the book of life? You know, Revelation 13.8 gives that book a longer title. It calls it the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And that should sound familiar because in verse 19 we read of the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world but was manifest in these last times for you. How is it that we can, as the hymn writer says, gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Peter tells us in verse 21. It says, Who by him, those who have been redeemed, who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. We have the entire gospel in just these few verses, and we could spend another entire morning just talking about that. The blood of Christ is his death the resurrection there is God raising him up from the dead and giving him glory. Those who by him believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, those who have been covered with the precious blood of the Lamb, those are the ones who are written in the book of life. It's just as we, as we had it in John 5, 24. He that heareth my word and believeth on him that set me hath everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. Peter didn't write this to create doubt. He didn't want us to fear for our salvation. He wrote this so that we could know, and the fear that he wants us to, to he the fear that he wants us to experience is not a fear that we might not be saved. It's a fear that we might do something to disobey the Father or something to dishonor the Son. He wants us to have confidence that we know we have been redeemed by the blood of the Son. And in light of that confidence, he wants us to sojourn in fear, fear of doing anything to disobey the Father or dishonor the Son. Thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift in giving his only begotten Son to die on the cross for us. If there's any doubt in your mind about whether your name is written in the book of life, Peter wrote these words, and there are many other words written, that you might know that you have eternal life. And you can come up and talk to myself or any of the believers here. We can show you how you can have confidence that your name is written in that book and that you won't face judgment alone before the great white throne according to your works. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the blood of your Son. Thank you that he went to the cross to take away our sin. Thank you for your servant Peter and his exhortation here to pass the time of our sojourning in fear. Father, we love you, and we know that you love us. You love us so much that you sent your only begotten Son to die on the cross so that whosoever believes in you will not perish, will not end up in the lake of fire, will have everlasting life. Father, I pray that everyone here would experience what it means to pass 
from death into life. We would experience what it means to know that there is now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Father, thank you for this next portion of our service where we'll remember the blood of your Son and the Lord's table. Help us to enter into that time meditating on what he did for us on the cross. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.